0: You're listening to Beyond the Plate with Andrew Kaplan. That sounds so weird. You're listening to Beyond the Plate with Cappy. So I said to him, I want all that spinach. I want every bit that you have, and don't you dare tell another chef you (laughs) have it. It's all going to just be
1: for me. Hey, everyone, this is Cappy, and you're listening to Beyond the Plate, a podcast where I sit down in person with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the industry and the social impact they have made in their community. Every episode, we share inspiring stories of what it means to be in today's bustling hospitality industry. This is a big one. For this episode, I sat down with Chef Rick Bayliss. Our first Chicago chef, and it's an exciting one because I'm based in Chicago. Rick is a chef owner of Frontera Grill, Topolobampo, La Tortas Frontera in O'Hare Airport, Lane Brava, Cruz Blanca, and many more. We sat with Rick at his corporate headquarters in Chicago where all the magic happens. Rick is responsible, I would say, for bringing farmers markets to Chicago. When he opened his first restaurant, Frontera Grill, 30 years ago, there weren't any. So we're going to hear that whole story and it's remarkably exciting. We'll hear a lot about his charitable efforts, including his Frontera Farmers Foundation and a new foundation that he just started with his family that is not food-related. We get into his own podcast called The Feed, which he does with Steve Dolinsky, another fellow Chicagoan. Make sure to check out their podcast. Rick is a winner of one of the seasons of Top Chef Masters. He has his own cooking show on PBS. They're going into the 12th season, I want to say, called Mexico, One Plate at a Time. It's received multiple daytime Emmy nominations. He's a second recipient of the Julia Child Award. He's won multiple James Beard Awards. We're going to get into his Frontera Foods grocery store line. We're going to get into a ton of stuff here. Rick's got nine cookbooks that he's authored. And here's the truth. I've wanted to sit with Rick for a while. He's got a busy schedule. I'm glad we were able to do so. I know what Rick has accomplished. But when I sat down and started doing a little more research and reading his bio, it's truly incredible what this man has brought to Chicago, to the country, to the world when it comes to Mexican cuisine. So I'm going to leave it there because Rick's a pro. There's incredible stories you're going to hear truthfully, no joke. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Chef Rick Bayless. Thanks for chatting. I love to chat. The wonderful world of podcasts. I'd like to start with setting the tone. We want. To, can you do that for us? Like w- where we are, the hub of it all. Yeah, we're above Frontera
0: Grill and Topolobampo and Shoko on Clark Street in downtown Chicago. This is where we started 30 years ago, 445 North Clark Street, with uh, one storefront. We now have uh, one, two, three, four storefronts, and we have the four basements below, and we have two floors above it. So in 30 years. We've grown a lot here. We have a lot of special event space here, private dining, test kitchen for doing all of our recipes for the television shows, books, things like that. This used to be where we did all of the development for all the salsas and different things that you can buy in the grocery store, the sauces. And we have now moved that away from here. That business got so big
1: that we've moved it out of the 445 North Clark area. That's super exciting. So you have this like hidden underground tunnel that takes you everywhere? No,
0: it's actually three different buildings in four different storefronts. And the way that the buildings have been built, it's very labyrinthian. We always laugh for people that join our staff that we need to have put up signs that say, you are here. And the only way to get there is to go upstairs to floor two across (laughs) and come back down and things like that. It does tend to be kind of confusing for some people when they first start here. But those of us that have been here for a long time, feel like it's second nature.
1: I like to start off also with how we met. I grew up in the north suburbs of Chicago, so I'm, of course, very familiar with all of your restaurants. And you also were a part, I work with Rachel Ray, as you know, and we did a block party here back Mm -hmm. in like 2008 or nine, and you were a big part of that. You were one of the chefs at a cooking demo. And I see you all around town at events because you're extremely generous with your time, which is incredible. I've lived all across the country, LA, New York, Miami, And people always ask me about Rick Bayless and his restaurants in Mm -hmm. Chicago. And I love that we have that here in Chicago. (laughs) You're kind. But when I was doing research on you and reading, you know, I like to read a bio and navigate it a little bit. I know you've done a lot. But you've done a lot. (laughs) I mean, your accomplishments, I mean, honestly, Julia Child's Awards and things from the government of Mexico and multiple James Beard Awards and restaurants. And it's what you have on your plate is and what you've built is truly incredible. I think a ton of people know what you do in terms of giving back, but there's a lot of people that can almost benefit from it in a way and you get back in many different ways. So as I said, I know you're a generous and giving person whether it's your time or your voice or dollars or acknowledging people, but you've been very philanthropic for what I know for a greater part of like 15 years through your foundation mm-hmm. of your career. So, can you talk about the Frontera Farmer Foundation sure. and what it does? Well, I
0: think in general chefs are very uh, generous people. What we do for a living is to bring people together at a t- That, to me, is the nucleus of creating community. So that's what we get to do every day, all day long. We get to bring joy to people. We get to offer them something that's going to, we hope, enhance the quality of their lives. And so we tend, as chefs, In general, I think, except for perhaps the ones that get into this business, not because they love to cook and share the food, but because they think it's a good business. But for those of us that got into it because we love to cook and share, we tend to always look for opportunities to give back. Before the hurricane Irma did landfall, I had already been contacted by two people about working on a relief benefit (laughs) (laughs) for those that will be in need, as it was at that moment after that hit landfall. I I think that's just kind of who we are as people. The Frontera Farmer Foundation came out of the fact that I'd been living in Mexico and I had really come to the awareness that the best food in homes and restaurants came from the places that had the best local agriculture. And when we opened Frontera in in Chicago in 1987, there wasn't a single farmer's market in Chicago. And when I went down to our produce terminal to ask around to see who was going to carry the local strawberries when they came in season they all laughed at me they said those little things they're too tiny they spoil fast who would even want them no we only carry the big Driscoll's from California the ones that have virtually no flavor but look pretty on a plate and i thought oh my gosh we've got so far to go if we want to put chicago on the map as a great food town and i had decided already for several reasons that i wanted to settle in chicago and i knew that I would, I'd have my work cut out for me. So I started looking for farms that would drive into the city and bring us produce. And that was a really uphill battle. Then we finally got the first farmer's market in Chicago. And I tried to convince those producers to save stuff for me. And they said, no, nah, we want, you have to come and shop just like everybody else. And I said, but you know, I need 10 cases of tomatoes and I, you know, that sort of thing. And I said, nope, sorry. You just got to get out of bed really early on Saturday morning and come down because we're going to sell this stuff. We don't try So eventually we built trust with those people, but they couldn't supply us enough. We found some farms that we could partner with, but again, they couldn't supply us enough. So what we realized was that what they needed was an infusion of capital so that they could buy the hoop house or the watering system or the tractor or the delivery vehicle that would actually make their farms more productive and profitable. So we started a long time ago, like 20 years ago, a no interest loan program, which eventually evolved into a 501c3 not-for-profit organization. It went from being a no-interest loan to a grant-giving organization. And in the last dozen years or so, we've given away $2 million in small grants. We raise all of that money on one night in our restaurants, and our not-for-profit foundation has no paid employees. Everything that we do is volunteer. Everybody that works on that project is a volunteer. It's a very exciting thing to me because 100% of the money that we raise goes straight to the farmers. And that's the way that we have been able to invest so much in local agriculture. Now, if you're a young chef starting out and you're not buying from the local farms, nobody takes you seriously. I feel like that we have really made a major impact. We have helped grow farms from little boutique farms to small farms or small farms to midsize farms. And now they actually have enough that they can produce what we need in restaurants in Chicago. Chicago. Do those grants go to like Midwest farms? Only Midwest farms and family farms is what we, we give to. We don't do any sort of corporate farm giving or anything like that. It has to be a small family owned farm. We only invest in things that will literally make that farm more productive and profitable.
1: What was your like
0: aha moment to start this? It was one winter in February and one of the farmers we had been working with came to our restaurant with a bag of sp- spinach. And I said, I didn't know you had a greenhouse. And he said, I don't have a greenhouse. I have a hoop house. It's a a much simpler structure and it's unheated. And I said, no way that you're growing spinach in the middle of the winter in Wisconsin. That's where his farm is. And he said, no, I know a variety of spinach that can take a light frost. And he said, I plant it all in November. It grows until about January. And then it sort of just matures. And he had brought it to me in February and it was the best spinach that I'd ever had Mm -hmm. in my life life mm-hmm. well because when the spinach starts to the freeze a little bit when it gets that light frost it gets sweeter because the plant produces more sugar and sugar is what keeps the plant from freezing solid so it's very sweet spinach so I said to him I want all that spinach I want every bit that you have and don't you dare tell another <laughs> chef you have it it's all gonna just be for me and he goes no no I said, he said I don't have very much of it he explained to me the size of his hoop house I said buy another hoop house I'll buy every everything you produce. And he goes, oh my God, I I don't have that kind of money. (laughs) It'd take me five years to save up that kind of money. And I said, well, what if we lent you the money? And then you paid us back in spinach. And that's how the whole project started.
1: This is kind of along the same lines of what you're talking about in in acknowledging and recognizing Midwest farmers. I graduated culinary school in early, early 2000s. Of course, we learn about different chefs. You're one of them. I came home and wanted to have a great meal with my family. We came to Topolabamba. And this was right when you did a Burger King advertisement, which I thought was really interesting. And I thought a few things. A, you were a little ahead of your time, I'll say it, in the sense of an endorsement. And I was Mm -hmm. talking to Rocco Disparito recently about it too, about why people look at him in a certain way. And I told him, I said, you were ahead of your time when you were working with brands, if Mm -hmm. you will. Now these days, every chef wants to work with a brand. I think we were talking about it at our table at Topolabampo and the server heard us. And all of a sudden, she came back to our table with a letter on Topolobampo Frontera letterhead explaining why you did that. And I thought that was fascinating. I still have that letter. Oh, do you really? I have the letter and I and I had it with me at hospitality school at Florida International University in Miami because when we talk about chefs and what they do for the community and things like that, I would bring that letter to class. And when chefs, back in the day, when chefs asked me about doing things on a whim, an endorsement, should I do this or that, I referenced that. And yes, it was birth- Burger King, but there's meaning behind it as it relates to what you're talking about with acknowledging farmers, I feel like.
0: For me, of course, hindsight is always 2020. And when I did that, when I decided to do it, it was because they had come to me and said, we want to change the face of fast food. We want to go fresh. We want to reduce sodium. We want to make, since we feed people every day, all day long, and we have become sort of everyday food for people, we want to to make that healthier so I said yeah I would really like to be part of that I would like to help be the face of that and bring some awareness to the fact that they were trying to change their path okay so of course Not everybody saw it that way they just saw it as me shilling for Burger King which was the evil giant and they wouldn't even listen to what Burger King was trying to do so fast forward a couple of months three months whatever they dump that program they have a new CEO that says no what we want to do is do the most unhealthy food the fattest stuff the I don't know they had some project that they were doing at that time that was just horrific so I learned not to put my Energy behind things that possibly could change <laughs> quickly. There was a lot of backlash toward me, but it was actually all of the money that I made on that that started our Frontera Farmer Foundation, and all was put back into our local agricultural economy here. It was painful for me because there was such a strong backlash, but you know, you live and learn. At this point in my life, all I can say is it actually turned out good because it gave us the money that we needed to kickstart that and. Every penny that I made on that went straight into that foundation, which was my plan all along.
1: I learned a hard lesson and it was an important lesson to learn. Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, you travel to Mexico quite often. Do you bring staff with you ever? Like, how does that work?
0: All of our management staff uh, goes with us every year to Mexico, to some part of Mexico. And last year, we used to do it all together, but our staff has grown so big now that we've divided it up. And we do three or four educational trips to Mexico, to different parts Depending on what your level of knowledge is about Mexico, I have an apartment in Mexico City that I built specifically to be a training facility so that if you're new to our staff, then I'm going to take you to Mexico City. I'm going to teach you about culture and history. We're going to go to market and we're going to buy stuff and we're going to come back and we're going to cook a meal. And that gives us the opportunity to get everybody's Feet firmly planted on Mexican soil, which is what I need from them in order to be able to bring alive our mission, which is to bring the real culinary culture of Mexico to the United States. We're not in the business of showing you how creative we can be and how we can take Mexican ingredients and show the world that people in Mexico have never done the right things with them because we're more brilliant than they are. No, you have to learn, if you become a sous chef here, you have to go through what we call the sous chef training program, and you have to prove to me that you can make all the traditional foods perfectly well before I will ever let you start creating dishes for our menu.
1: that's like a certified master chef. It test to it's in that, itself.
0: It's that kind of thing. And people are just amazed at what they have to show me that they can do. And they have to get the flavorings right because flavorings in the Mexican kitchen, the traditional Mexican kitchen are very different than in the United States. So we say we get you, we use a language analogy. We have to, we say that you have to be able to cook in Spanish. You have to be able to cook in fluent Mexican Spanish, not English throwing in some Spanish words, but you have to really be able to master the cuisine and show me that you're fluent in it before I'll turn you loose in the creative process.
1: Do you ever find a gap with maybe introducing something? I, I always respect if a chef says this is a traditional dish from XYZ village or region or city, I respect that for what that is and where it comes from. But these days with everyone having an opinion about the food world. Is there ever a gap with you wanting to bring a dish to a menu, but I'm sure you don't want to adjust the dish to our taste buds, if you will. We never adjust to our
0: taste buds, but we sometimes change ingredients out because maybe we can't get a certain ingredient, but we have some other ingredient that we think is going to play a similar role in the dish, so we will do that. But then we have to have gone to Mexico, learned that dish in its native place, brought it back, and they have to convince me, this is the sous chefs, they have to convince me that they can make that dish so that it has a similar impact as the original dish. And to me, that is one of the most important things that you can do. I, again, I'm going to use a language analogy because I come up through language studies and cultural studies. And so I'm always thinking in those terms, there is a siren going by here. And I just wonder if they're coming for me right now, because I've gotten too deep into all of these things, but I'm going to go ahead and do this analogy. We say that when you are it's it's like a translation so if i read to you a pablo neruda poem one of the great poets of the world if i read you a pablo neruda poem in spanish and you don't speak spanish then you might enjoy listening to the syllables come off the tongue but you're really not gonna understand what that poem is about. But if I'm a really skilled translator and I can translate that into English for us in a way that captures the heart and soul of the original, not just word for word translation, but idea for idea translation, then that poem can have a similar kind of impact. And sometimes we have to do that kind of translation. However, (laughs) it still has to have that same impact. And we can't ever lose sight of that. It's something I don't think they train enough in culinary school. Culinary school is really about nuts and bolts, that you have to learn all the basic techniques and recipes and stuff that people would expect you to know. But they don't teach you really how to be a chef. When you become a chef, your thought process is much more broad than that.
1: How important do you think it is for chefs or young cooks or your cooks to give back?
0: We have a monthly meeting. We do open book finance here. So everybody sees all the the books, (laughs) everything. And so we are always, we believe very strongly in healthy finances. And we feel that the only way that we can have really healthy finances is if everybody is taking responsibility for them. So we have one meeting where we go we sit down all our management staff and go over the statements for that month. And then when we finished finances, we go into environment because that's another one of our bottom lines. So how have we done in recycling? How have we done in composting? How have we done in electrical and water use? And so that's all part of that same meeting. And then the last part of that is what have we done to make our community a better place to live? And we talk about all of that. Who's done what? Who volunteered here? When we Did we give gift certificates or signed cookbooks to people's auctions? Who have we contributed in? And then we have a scholarship program here that is for Mexican-American kids in the Chicago public school system, where we choose one student every year that we send on a full free ride scholarship to college here our best culinary school.
1: That's through the foundation, the frontier. Of, no, it's, it's a different, separate thing. different program.
0: <laughs> we got a lot of things going yeah, I on. Love here. It. We have another foundation as well that's only focused on the, on the arts. Really? <laughs> yeah, that's uh that's a new foundation, yeah, that we've just started but and it mostly focuses on theater because my family, I and my family are major theater people and so we've started another foundation that really focuses on the arts in general but specifically on small theater companies in Chicago. We have about 150 different theater companies in in the city of Chicago. And we think that they make our community a really rich place to live. So we want to help support them so that they're,
1: they will continue in business and continue to bring joy to people. That's the second time I've heard a statistic like that about Chicago's theater community mm-hmm. in, in a short amount of time, and that's awesome. It's the
0: most vibrant and complex theater community in the country. I mean, it's very different than New York because New York is a lot about commercial theater. These are all not-for-profits. We have almost no commercial theater. Um, basically, the Broadway in Chicago which is the touring companies of the Broadway shows, they will come and sit down here for a while, but
1: all the rest of it is not for profit. I'm excited to see how that foundation takes off third, and then I'm excited to see what the fourth Foundation <laughs> is. Did you say that was with your family? Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: it's the, called the Bayless Family Foundation.
1: Let's go back to Oklahoma in like the 60s, 50s, 60s. How did growing up in Oklahoma influence... You as a person. You know, wherever you grew up, you can create the world that you're kind of looking for. It might be
0: harder, but I was able to put together what I needed. But about the age of 10, I realized that probably I wouldn't be staying in Oklahoma for a long time. young? Yeah, I realized that there were big horizons out there and I needed to go and explore them. I grew up in a barbecue restaurant and I think that that is very essential to my story because one thing that I learned growing up in barbecue was what it meant to do regional food. Barbecue is the regional food of, of Oklahoma. When I got to Mexico and I started understanding about the regional foods of Mexico and they are more abundant and definitely more varied than what we find in the United States, I could relate to it because I grew up in traditional food. And I I grew up with the respect and pride that doing a regional food can engender. I'm really thankful to have grown up in that. I also grew up with live fire cooking, which is my passion. The first piece of equipment that I bought for Frontera Grill was a wood-fired grill. Honest to God, that was the first thing that I bought. Not a stove, not a refrigerator, a wood-fired grill. And my mother, my father died when I was in high school. My mother remarried and she married a fellow who was in the restaurant equipment business because she had known this guy forever. And she asked me when I said that was my first purchase, it's like, that is the stupidest first purchase (laughs) ever. You got to get the the real nuts and bolts here. You got to figure out what what you need for refrigeration and stuff like that first. Uh, But no, I I was building it from, I was building the whole kitchen around that wood-fired grill.
1: So now you're playing your bravo, which is is that all? It's
0: all, I mean, you know, this is is me being at my silliest in a a lot of ways. It's all wood-fired. I had always wanted to do that. My wife did say, you could do that at home if you wanted. You (laughs) didn't have to make it into a a full-fledged restaurant. But there is not even a gas hookup in the kitchen. But I went to this place in Spain that I had read about for years called Echibari and that... Been, you've been. Yeah. And that is an all wood fired yeah. kitchen. Did you visit the kitchen?
1: There's like an open part of it. I don't know if there's a bigger main one, but I definitely walked by a yeah, small Yeah, it, no,
0: it's all indoors, the one okay. that I got to visit, but it took us forever to get there because the chef was really careful the, about not letting anybody visit, but Grant Ackett's from Alinea here had just been to Echibari three months before I was there, they said to me, do you know Grant Ackett? And I said, yes. He's a chef also in Chicago. And they said, yes, he was here. So the chef says you can come to the kitchen. And so I was like, okay, thank you very much. But they said not until he's finished cleaning up from lunch service. We were there at lunch service. We sat there for two hours waiting for him to invite us to the kitchen. But that's an all wood-fired kitchen. I had seen it and I've always wanted to do it. So Lenya Brava is 22 feet of hearth with six fires on it. And then a huge wood burning oven, and that's the whole kitchen. And it's delicious. Thank you. Oklahoma Mexican barbecue was that a family restaurant? My family had a a barbecue restaurant for 37 years there. So I've always been around places that have been in business for a really long time. My grandparents had everything from like lunch counters to drive-ins to to simple restaurants. My aunt and uncle, they had a drive-in restaurant. This was back in the sixties when drive-in restaurants were all the rage, you know, that sort of thing. So this was your life. And my great grandparents were the first gross in the state of Oklahoma to have a, have a chain of grocery stores in Oklahoma City. Will you and can you open like a Mexican barbecue place? We call it Mexico here, and one of my sous chefs, the, mo- the the one that's been with me the longest, he's been here for 23, 24 years, maybe 25 now, he grew up on the south side of Chicago and is super into barbecue, and when he makes dishes for our menu, sometimes they come off tasting a little Mexico like really? and so one time we did an all Mexico menu for him just so that he could really get into it, because there are similarities in the flavors, but when you taste, I made a barbecue menu for my friends in Mexico City about four or five months ago, and they thought it was the weirdest food they'd ever eaten in their entire lives. (laughs) Um, So I made them straight Oklahoma barbecue with all the accompaniments to go with it, you know, and the the potato salad and the baked beans. And that's a a thing in Mexico that you never, ever put sugar or vinegar near beans. And, you know, baked beans have ketchup in them, and that's all about sugar (laughs) and vinegar. And so, they thought the whole thing was just super weird. So that taught me a big lesson. I'm still (laughs) learning lessons, even at this
1: point in my life. Okay, this is incredible. The government of Mexico bestowed the Mexican Order of the Aztec Eagle, which is the highest decoration bestowed on foreigners whose work have benefited Mexico and its people. Did you ever think something like that would happen?
0: I, I, I never think about those kind of things very much. I knew that that award existed because I've known at least one other person that has received it. But I don't do my work just to get awards. I do it because I love doing what I do. My focus has always been to bring the riches of Mexican culture to people in the United States. And we've turned a corner in in our culture again, and it's the wrong corner. (laughs) And suddenly Mexico, I feel like I've gone back 30 years, that we were getting, I was getting to the point where I could assume that people in the United States had some knowledge of what a beautiful, rich culture there is just next door to us across the Rio Grande. Now it's sort of like Mexico's been vilified again and we're build, th- talking about building walls and it's their horrible rapists and philanderers or whatever, you know, and that makes me super sad because I felt like that we were beginning to understand as a culture in the United States a little bit about what a spectacular culture there really is that exists there. I will tell you that when the tsunami comes, you want all those people south of the border on your team, not necessarily all your neighbors that live around you because in the states we're very much about every man for himself and yes when there are natural disasters suddenly you start to see that oh we can be nice to one another we can be generous but in mexico people are that way all the time it doesn't have to be a natural disaster that brings out the goodness in their hearts
1: you've done it a lot with your career but just when we think you've done it all you know something new comes out that rick bayless is now doing this and I want to talk about the podcast because it's super exciting. You're doing a podcast with Steve Bilinski called right. The Feed. And I, I haven't listened to everyone, but I've listened to quite a few. And I think it's interesting because you're two very... In- knowledgeable people wanting to bring something about food to more people. Right. And I think it's a lot beyond that. But You know, it's very interesting because Steve and I are very different people. Uh,
0: We have very different approaches to food. He's on the side of the people that observe the food world. I'm on the side of the people that create the food world. I once said to him, he hasn't worked a day in in his life in a restaurant, and he goes, no, 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 when I was 14, (laughs) I worked as a busboy one time. I said, I don't think that counts. (laughs) He doesn't come from inside the restaurant world. And obviously that's where I come from. He knows a massive amount about food. And I know the more experiential side of things. He eats in restaurants constantly. I hardly ever go out. So I'm, it's like we make a good pair because we're coming at things from different perspectives. And he travels all over the world for his job because he does a lot of writing and that sort of stuff. And so he goes on these junkets and he always records massive amounts of stuff while he's gone that is just enriches our podcast so much. When we won the James Beard uh, Award for Best Podcast, the show that had been submitted was the one that he did when he went to Japan. Oh, really? And it was such a great show. I played very little role in all of that, (laughs) but he's also an amazing broadcast journalist. He really... We've got sirens the are back. Sirens it's like in New York are coming. City. <laughs> yeah, well, that's kind of where I live here in <laughs> Chicago. We've got, we call it the dramatic firehouse on one side yeah. of us and then Clark Street on the other yeah, right. and up and down all day long, you hear all the sirens going. Anyway, we love the podcast. And one of the things that I wanted to do in the podcast was cook on the radio because I think it's very evocative. That's one of the things that, you know, I do a lot of television work. So, you know, we're just getting ready to start the 12th season of Mexico one played at a time on PBS on PBS, but I like the intimacy of audio only because it makes all of our listeners bring so much To what they're hearing. So I like cooking on the radio, as I call it, because we have to describe everything. And so we do these little, what we call chef challenges. It's 15 minutes and you get five ingredients plus whatever one ingredient that we're both cooking with. And you have to make a dish. And the whole point of it isn't to make a, to make it into a real challenge. Those are just the, the boundaries that we put on it to make it accessible and, and that people just don't get like involved in doing anything that's really complex. But the idea is, what does a chef make when you're in a hurry and you got to get dinner on the table? So they're all 15-minute recipes with five ingredients plus our, our focused one. And it's really interesting to see how people cook. And we have fun with it. But what you learn is techniques that chefs use to enhance the flavor of a dish when you're cooking really quickly. We all know these little tricks that you can do. And so we bring them to bear on these quick little Challenges. Plus, it's audio rich because you hear the chopping and the searing and, you know, all that sort of stuff. It's really, to me, it's really fun. I love listening are to it. Are you
1: challenging too much. the people?
0: It's Steve Delinsky challenging me and one other chef from Chicago. So, you and
1: one other chef from Chicago are cooking at the same time? And at the same, and same time. Steve's
0: and we do that in our test kitchen just below where we are right now. Got it. And we have two stations in that test kitchen, and each
1: one of them has a stovetop right next to it. So, So it's fun. For this podcast, Beyond the Plate, every other week, we have the chefs do a short segment we call Just the Plate, and it's a little recipe read. I think you're going to knock it out of the park on that one. Rachel Ray did the first one and she did carbonara pasta and she got into it. I mean, like what kind of salt she was using and the brand of pasta and when to salt the water. And afterwards I got emails from people saying, Hey, do you have video of the recipe of Rachel making the carbonara? I was like, no, we were sitting at her kitchen table. You know, I agree with you. There's something very rich about an audio recipe, if you will. And you could really tune out but tune into this recipe and and almost taste it and hear flavors. Yeah. 30 years for Frontera, how do you keep a brand or the food like relevant or exciting.
0: A couple of different ways uh, that we tackle that. One is that we change the menu every 4 weeks and we have to change the menu. So it doesn't matter whether something's selling well or whatever, you you got to change the menu. So that keeps us all in creative mode. And you have to be when you're in creative mode, you have to be asking yourself at least intuitively, what do I want to eat? What am I what's exciting me right now? So that keeps it very fresh. The other thing that keeps it fresh is that about once a year, I go through a little process that I make myself sit down and say, if I was opening Frontera Grill today, what would it look like? And that way, I'm not in a rut saying the the worst thing you could ever say in a restaurant is, no, it was successful before, so we're just going to keep it that way. Because everything is constantly evolving, especially right now in the food world. So I always ask myself that question once a year, what would Frontera Grill look like or Toplo Bompo look like if I was opening it today? And sometimes it's hard to do because I, I want to just keep doing what I'm doing because it's comfortable, but sometimes I have to to say, well, it, the menu wouldn't look like this. And I think we need to reevaluate our menu format, say, or something like that, you know? Sometimes it's a visual thing. It, it wouldn't look like the this room that we have here. So I think we need to think about redoing the room.
1: Did you look up to any chef as a young cook? Or is there, are there any chefs that you currently watch to, that inspire you? Or did, it was
0: very interesting because I'm old enough that there were hardly any people that I could look <laughs> up to, okay? So when I was 10... 1963, um, Julia Child came on um, what we called educational television back then. It wasn't even public television. It was educational television. And she started her French Chefs series. And that is one of the things that opened my eyes to what the full range of possibilities with food could be. And without her, I don't know where I would have been today. So when I received, I was the second recipient of the Julia Child Award from the Julia Child Foundation. It was... Was it, it brought tears to my eyes because without her, I couldn't have done what I'm doing today. And it was her continuous inspiration that made me keep digging deeper. Now, she wasn't a trained chef. She had gone to professional cooking school, but she wasn't like, she never worked in a restaurant. But what she did bring was that sense of digging deep into the understanding of food and making it really good. It didn't have to be fancy. And no, she didn't have the best knife skills and all that sort of stuff. She was completely dedicated to finding out the truth about food and that was very inspirational to me. It's funny that you asked this question because I just finished reading Alice Waters' new memoir Coming to My Senses. She was the other person. It's kind of interesting that it was two women that were my my big inspirations when I was younger, but what she inspired me to do was to think about the sourcing of all of the ingredients. And when you're in Mexico, you it's it's right there in front of you. (laughs) I had a friend once tell me in a small village in Oaxaca that she couldn't move her restaurant to Oaxaca City 45 minutes away because she couldn't get the right ingredients. She had to get the ingredients just from her village because her food wouldn't taste the same if she sourced them 45 minutes away in Oaxaca City. And so I had kind of grown up with that, living in Mexico for five years. Alice was my inspiration for that. I thought, there's a way that we can do this in Chicago. It took a lot longer because we didn't have that started yet in in Chicago as they had started it out in Berkeley, but she was my inspiration for all of that. That and sustainable agriculture and thinking of a restaurant not as just a place where you go and buy a meal, but as a uh, an expression
1: of a community. You said you have a sous chef or chef that's been with you for about 24 years or so, and we've heard about what it takes to convey food and flavors in in a Rick Bayless establishment. But what do you think your sous chefs would say about you as a mentor?
0: That I am relentless, that you never can stop with good, I will always come back to the next day and say, couldn't it be better? I mean, it was good. If that's the way it goes on the menu, it's good. But we're striving for something more than that. Let's let's go back to it. So I'm relentless in that. I had a sous chef early on in Topolobampo who was, he had a fatal disease and, and passed on that year. And one of the last things he said to me was, the thing that I will thank you for forever, is never letting me stop with a dish that every day you would come in and say oh why don't we try this oh why can't we make it better If that so there's something in that flavor that's not complete yet for me and I would just keep pushing him on and, and he said he made him want to scream like it's good enough <laughs> just stop and he would know that I would come back and say no, we can probably make that better. So that unrelenting search for making things better, I just think about that all the time. And um, I, I think that and sharing knowledge. It's like I... I I could teach those guys. I mean, we have to do service. So you got to actually make the food, but I could teach those men and women in my kitchen all day long and be super happy because I love teaching and I love seeing them come along. I love getting in debates about flavor and, and plate presentations and all of that. We have one hour a week where we all sit around a table and we brainstorm dishes. And it's, it's a really—it's my favorite hour of the week because nothing is too ludicrous, stupid, out of the ballpark. Anything—it's we just sit down and we just talk, and sometimes we'll go down tangents that are crazy. And they know that I'm not seriously sitting around saying, "No, we've got to get this stuff done" or whatever. I'm like sometimes out of those crazy moments come the seeds of our best dishes. So like my wife hates it when we do this and we'll sit around the table and we'll just like go crazy with ideas. And she's like, (laughs) why are you guys doing that? It's like, you're supposed to be here working on a menu and creating a menu. (laughs) And I said, no, we actually are. Because if you don't let yourself loose like that, you can't
1: actually be your, you can't embrace your full creativity. Frontera foods, the product world I feel like is interesting in general for people and chefs and you know, a lot of people, they use you as a benchmark. You're a chef that have products and recently... Was acquired by ConAgra Foods. I understand it and I get it. My guess is that you've probably had offers to sell in the past, but I want you to speak about this journey and why now because you didn't start doing charring salsas three years ago and then a a big company came to you and said, Oh, we'll buy you. I mean, this has been 20 years. 20 years,
0: yeah. we, We have the product line for 20 or we have the product line for 20 years. Actually, 20 coming up on 22 now. Okay, so I'm a little bit different than most chefs starting a product line. Either a chef wants to start a product line because they think they're going to get rich on it or that it's going to be a vanity product, one or the other. <laughs> and the, I didn't start for either one of those things. For us, the, the motivation to do the product was that one of our regular customers was in graduate school doing his MBA at Kellogg. He had come from the food world. He wanted to go back into the food world. And he said to me, I want to write a paper on developing a product line for you. And so can I meet with you and we can talk about stuff? So we did that. And then we just kept meeting. And he had, he he was working for Kraft Foods at the time uh, while he was going to graduate school. And then after he got out, he came back to us and said, you know, I really want to talk about this seriously. Let's see if we can start it. We didn't start it with any funds or anything like that. We just simply said, okay, let's see what we can do. It took us one full year to find somebody that could make the product the way that we cook in the restaurant. My goal was not to a vanity line that people would take as a host gift to somebody's house. And I didn't think, oh, I'm just going to blow this thing out and dumb it down and make it. No, I wanted it to be something that really brought the true flavors of Mexico, the flavors that we do at Frontera, to a wider audience, because every night our restaurants are full and we can't make them any bigger. (laughs) But sometimes people would like to have our flavors more frequently than the couple times a year that they get to go to our restaurants. So I wanted to just enhance their lives with these beautiful flavors um, in a way that would be more accessible, both financially and available uh, in, in an availability ways. And so we started Frontera Foods and we started with five salsas. They're still our biggest selling things, but we developed that product line over a long period of time, trying out many different things. The world of packaged food in the grocery store is completely different. I will tell every chef listening to this. That it's a really different world and the only way you could be successful at it is to have a partner that understands it and has been in it for a long time. We're lucky enough to be picked up by Whole Foods right away and that sort of launched us further on and then we got national distribution with Whole Foods that grew our business and eventually we grew it over 20 years of slow growth into a big company that was available coast to coast. We were really strapped We wanted to be able to do more products, but we just didn't have either the wherewithal to do it from an R&D standpoint or the money to do it. And so we decided at one point we either needed to get an influx of capital, meaning that we would sell part of our business to like a venture capital group, or we were going to look for somebody that we could partner with that would be like a big food company that would be able to shepherd our brand in the way that we thought would be the wisest and we went down both of those paths for a while. And, you know, ConAgra is three blocks from Frontera. It's a, the merchandise mart here. And they had just moved here and they were starting uh, what they call their gourmet division because they wanted to make sure that they were relevant in 2017 and beyond. And so they were trying to, you know, they have some really good products the Orville Redenbacher popcorn and Wesson Oil and, you know, stuff like that. And they just knew that they needed to play in a different field, too. And so they were looking for something that was more like a gourmet product to anchor this new division for them. And we got to know them, and they seemed like that they were going down the right path. I am still the head of their R&D for for that, okay? And the person that was my right hand and my partner in the R&D has joined the staff full-time for ConAgra. So I'm actually more involved in that company than I've ever been because instead of just two people in R&D, now we got like seven over there. And they just have that wherewithal to be able to get products to market really fast. I mean, it would take us a full year to get something and they can do it in six months. When we ask them... the other day for this one frozen item that we were looking for. I said, could you get frozen chayote, IQF frozen chayote? This woman that we work with that I just love over there, she said, well, I don't know. I haven't asked around for that. Let me see if I can find it. And the next week she came back and said, yeah, found the frozen Chayote. And so it's, that's cool to me because I'm not sure our small R&D department would have ever had the, the resources to actually find it or if they had found it to have the buying power to actually get it into one of our, our products. But that's what we have when joining forces now with ConAgra.
1: That's exciting. That's super exciting. Let's do a speed round. Okay. A quick fun one, quick answer. First thing that comes to your mind, what did you have for dinner last night? I ate at Lenya Brava and I had uni.
0: Uh, I love uni. And I had these little tostadas that we're doing in a Tijuana style. And they have this beautiful uh, red chili marinated
1: tofu on them. Sounds delicious. Odd, but it was really yeah. good. <laughs> Name a smell in the kitchen you love. Mm, uh, garlic. Name a smell in the kitchen you hate. Uh,
0: celery...
1: What pisses you off in the kitchen? Anytime that anybody treats
0: any product with disrespect, it, it just, I, I start shaking. <laughs> and I was like, do you know what it took to grow that and how much care it took to get that from the field into our kitchen? And then you just threw that on a table and you m- m- smarted in some way or disrespected it. And uh, no, that drives me crazy. What makes you happy in the kitchen? Uh, lots of beautiful ingredients. If you look at my like Instagram feed, it's almost always these pictures of ingredients or a picture. Of, <laughs> it's like only chefs would understand this, but a perfectly done mise en place before service. It's like my glorious moment. Cause I go through the lines just before we started here, I came straight from the kitchens and I had gone through everybody's mise en place, tasted all the sauces and all that sort of stuff. Um, because I do that before lunch and then I, do it again before dinner. And sometimes the mise en place is so beautiful <laughs> that I just take a picture of it and post it on Instagram. And I always laugh. And it's always the chefs that respond. Oh, beautiful mise en place, yeah. beautiful mise
1: en place. That's so, like the ultimate, I feel like that's the ultimate praise for your line cook. They probably see you coming and they're like, oh crap, did I gross my chilies <laughs> right or anything like that? And then if you taste it and take a picture, they're like, God nailed it. No, no, I, I
0: I lavish praise when I see it as like, oh, that is so beautiful. <laughs> but I do the same thing with dishes on the line when I like, I'm just walking past the line. I'm not expediting or anything. I'm just walking past, and I'll just stop and I'll go. That is a perfect plate. Yeah. What actor
1: would you want to play Rick Bayless in a movie?
0: Oh, I'm really terrible at this. <laughs> um, I don't. I don't know who um, uh, Macy. What's his name? What's his first name?
1: W- William H. Mason. Oh, William H. Macy. Somebody,
0: Somebody told me that one time, so I'm going to say it. That's great. That's great.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate your time. I know you're extremely busy. I believe you've been an enormous influence on, I think, Mexican food and culture, starting here in Chicago and just expanding out coast to coast and beyond. People wanting to visit you that come in from other cities, states, countries is an incredible thing. So I'm excited for you to reach that 37-year mark that your family has. <laughs> with their restaurant. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Quote, chefs are very generous people. What we do for a living is to bring people together at a table. That to me is the nucleus of creating community. Thanks again to Chef Rick Bayless. Find more on him at rickbayless.com. And join us next week when Beyond the Plate presents Just the Plate, a short segment where chefs describe a recipe sharing insider tips on what makes this specific dish meaningful to them. As you heard, Rick Bayless loves the intimacy of audio only, or cooking on the radio. So get ready for this, because he's a pro. You may find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at On Cappy's Plate, or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is now on Twitter at BTPlatePodcast, and we have our own Facebook page. Be our friend. This episode was produced by myself, along with Ian Cohen, Joe Yeaton, and Sean Petrosian. Big thank you all around. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. I know everyone says that, but if you like this podcast, please do so. It's a great help. And thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember... There are never too many cooks in the kitchen.